0: For those who don't know me, uh, my name is Aaron Sweeney. I'm the resident for preaching and discipleship here at church in the square. Um, and so this morning I get the honor to, and humbling honor to, preach God's word to y'all. So um, I am going to go ahead, and we're going to be in Acts 17, so I'll go ahead and read the text, and then we'll get in some prayer real quick and then get it going. So Acts 17, verses 16 to 21. It'll be in the New Testament just after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. And for those who don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hands, and someone from the Connections team will bring you a Bible. And if you don't have one, go ahead and keep that gift for, from us to you guys. So it'll be Acts 17, verses 16 to 21. I see Bible getting handed out. All right, go ahead and follow along with me. Verse 16. saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, uh, I'm just going to open us up in prayer. Lord, thank you for this time um, that we uh, gather, get to gather together corporately, weekly, um, before you to worship together, um, to give glory and honor to your name, and Lord, we ask you just to soften our hearts right now that we would hear your word, that we would be receptive to what you have to say, that you would use me as a vessel, humble me. Lord, help us. We love you. Thank you for your son's life, death, resurrection, and ascension. your name, amen. All right, so getting right into it. Um, As you can tell from the text, we are in Athens this week. So first verse in 16 says, Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So we're in Athens. Last week was Berea. Paul would have traveled south from Berea where we were last week to get to southern Greece, which is where Athens is. And like many of the cities of the time, it was under Roman rule. But there was a uniqueness to Athens as well compared to other cities that Paul has uh, gone through that we've encountered on this journey, you might say as ourselves, through Acts in this last year or so. Athens was a city that had a very prominent past, still does have a prominent past, one that was known amongst the ancient Near East as well. It was its history that actually helped aid it to become a free city within Rome, And so we've talked about free cities before, basically what that means for Athens, that it was able to have its own institutions, its own government. Rome would kind of keep its hands off, it wouldn't really engage at all as long as they could keep things calm. And so this will be key as we go throughout today. Athens was, the past of Athens that's so prominent was that it was an intellectual and philosophical capital of the Greco-Roman world. Not the most populated or powerful, at this time at least, uh, but their highest thought in education was understood to come from Athens. It was, it was the intellectual frame of reference at times. Scholars talk about later rabbis would refer to rabbis of old if they actually ousted the philosophers in Athens as a sort of credibility for their teaching. And this makes sense, given that Athens was the philosophical home of Socrates and Plato, some names we've probably heard of an adopted home of Aristotle and a man by the name of Epicurus, who we will talk about in a minute in this text. Names that continue to ring prominently in the field of philosophy even to this day, 2,000 years ago to this day. So big names. And this is where Paul finds himself waiting for Silas and Timothy. We know that because in the first um, verse it refers to them. We know we can look before the text last week. Remember we were in Berea. Paul was in Berea with the brothers and things got a little dicey. The Thessalonians came down to try to stir up things. And so the brothers sent Paul to Athens by way of the sea. And so Paul gets to Athens. And once he gets there, he turns to the captain or whoever's driving that boat and it's like, go get Saul or go get Silas and Luke for me. And so this is where we're at. He is waiting in Athens for Luke and Silas. And as Paul is waiting in Athens, it says, to remind us that his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Provoked. We can understand this translation possibly as irritated or distressed. And this specific description of the spirit's response in Paul emphasizes what exactly is in front of him here at Athens. There's an emphasis here. And to be sure, Athens was not the only city with idols. It wasn't the only free city of the time. But it was, in fact, the density and the Um, how many idols there were in Athens. Scholarship speaks that there are so many idols in Athens that they would cover the public space, that you could not miss them because they would be covering all the streets. And in this context, too, the term idol here is somewhat interchangeable with statue carving of that time, something physical that was bowed down to or literally worshipped as a god. And, and, And this is also what's been coined... As functional saviors, which are exactly what they sound like, things that function as a savior. And functional saviors are everywhere. Uh, in this text we see them as idols and statues. If we go back to Exodus, if we've heard of the story of the golden calf, the Israelites, Moses goes up Mount Sinai to hear from the Lord, and he does not come back soon enough for the Israelites. So they get together, want to make a golden calf to be a God on their behalf, to be their functional savior. We see this as well just a couple chapters back in verse 14 of Acts. If you remember, Paul and Barnabas, they're in Lystra, and um, they enter Lystra, and the people call them gods, refer to them as gods because they can give them sustenance, they think. They, They think they can provide for them. So they treat Paul and Barnabas humans as well as functional saviors. And so functional saviors take every shape and size, and they're innately good things, which we have distorted. Things we look to as a way to satisfy deeper idols of our heart. In 1 Timothy 4, 4-5, to helps us and reminds us of the fact that all things are good, and God reminds us of that. For everything, in verse 4 it says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So for the Athenians, it was idols. It was statues, carvings that they look to for fulfillment. And for us, it might be money. It might be our marriage. It might be the idea of marriage or kids or the, the want for kids. It's getting that next promotion. It's the tradition that we come from. It's any sort of pleasure. It might be, it could even be getting away from the difficulties and inconveniences of the city to have the nice house with the with nice fence and it's private out in the suburbs and it could be the vice versa as well. And so to reiterate, these things are all good things innately. Yet when they become a pawn in the bigger game of achieving our deeper idols, they become functional saviors. But Paul here, his main distress wasn't the functional saviors of the Athenians. Paul's spirit was provoked with what those functional saviors revealed about the people's hearts. And we know this... It's helpful too to look into the word provoked here in this in this text and the Greek word for provoked, uh, provoked is paraxeno this is important I'll tell you in just one second the way the term is used here regularly shows up in the old testament as well to describe a reaction of righteous jealousy from God towards his people when they turn from him when they turn from uh, glory, giving glory and honor to his name and giving glory and honor to other things so Paul shares in this emotion of righteous jealousy for the name of God. And this is the provocation or irritation that takes place in him through the Spirit. It was deeper than the functional saviors that were on the surface, and it's always deeper than the functional saviors on the surface, church. Always. And Paul knew there was idolatry in their heart. And he sums up this understanding in, in, in this caution in his first chapter of the, of the letter to, uh, to the Romans, verses 20 through 25, and I'll read that really quick, says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling the mortal man, and birds and animals and creeping things, functional saviors. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And so this is all all happening. This is while Paul is waiting for Luke and Silas, remind you. In his waiting, there is this activeness. Notice, this provocation, this irritability comes as... Paul observes the idols of the city. It wasn't that he got there, the Spirit led, and then he sees idols. No, he was able to visualize this. He observed. When he got there, he was observant. And he was observant to those surroundings, and as he was sitting there waiting, the Lord uses the Spirit to better guide him forward. He didn't sit back and choose passivity while waiting for Luke and Silas. No, he couldn't. By now, we probably know he is not capable of doing that. He wasn't waiting to know, okay, should I, should I bring glory and honor to the name of Jesus? No, Paul knew this. This was the default understanding of what it was to be Christian on mission. Instead, in his waiting, he was led by the Spirit and received context for where he was. He received clarity on the idols of the heart of these people that he was going to engage. He was led more by the Spirit. And so it begs the question, what do we think about waiting? What do we do in our waiting? Do we even wait? I know for myself, if I have to wait 30 seconds to like heat something up in the microwave, I'm quickly checking my phone for something, or I'm going to go fill up the water pitcher. Not necessarily terrible things, but I have, we have to ask the question, like, are we okay in the waiting? Is it all right to do that? Do we see waiting as something that God has for us, that he ordains waiting in our lives purposefully? It's not an accident. And so then it does beg the question, what do we do then? Do we understand that it is something that God has given us? And how do we be present and observant in those times as well? And to confirm that, God shows us through his spirit here in Paul that there is a purpose in our waiting. And Paul receives this and then he acts. Though not necessarily a surprise to us, Paul is constantly acting, and in a similar way as well. He's somewhat of a broken record, a good sense of a broken record. And so we see that in verse 17. It says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Paul is back reasoning in the synagogue where we all too often know he is comfortable. But this time, he reasons in the marketplace as well, and it says that daily. And now this is... This is not necessarily odd, but something unique and new. We have not seen Paul direct his ministry to the marketplace in this way throughout Acts yet. And the marketplace would have been a place for um, a hub of commerce, you might say, or like where the city center was, people moving about, lots of city life happening. It was also an area of public discourse or debate. And you can only imagine the level of public discourse and debate in Athens specifically being that Athens was the philosophical hub or center and intellectual epicenter of the Greco-Roman world. So debate and public discourse were rampant. They were happening often. And Paul knew this, and he was strategic, as well as being led by the Spirit, he was strategic in that. And beautifully, though, he's not held down with the thought of what the outcome will be. And I think it's key to notice those last words that Luke has there. In verse 17, it says... He did it every day with those who happened to be there. And there's a freedom in those words. He he went and reasoned in the marketplace daily and with those who happened to be there. Paul was not held down thinking about, okay, I'm going to go reason in the marketplace. Who's all going to be there? Um, will this person be there? Are they, what's the response? How are they going to receive what I have to say? What's the outcome going to be? No, Paul is functioning freely in what the Spirit has led him to do and walking obediently in Christ to preach the name of Jesus. And so there's freedom in that. Christ is leading him by the Spirit in that, so he's able to be free in that. And so we go on in verse 18. It says some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what, these, what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. So Paul here encounters two groups, the Epicureans and the Stoics, and so it's helpful to get a little bit of background of those two groups, and the Stoics, they were a group that saw logic, logos, the Greek word, logic there, reason, as divine. They saw that as divine, and it was something that was innately in every human, it was their soul. The logos was their soul. And so living by reason, living by logic, was the natural law. It was the natural way to live life. It was good if you did so. And being obedient to this would then free people from the fear or concern of anything happening outside their control. In other words, follow reason, follow natural law, and you will have control. You will keep the control. And if you follow reason, then that will be sufficient. And then we have the Epicureans they followed a man by the name of Epicurus who believes the gods were not present in this world. The gods didn't intervene at all. They stayed away. They did their own thing. They didn't intervene in life or even after death in any sort of judgment role for humanity. They believed also in a hedonist lifestyle, one that sought pleasure, but somewhat of a nuanced understanding of seeking pleasure than we might think of when it comes to when the word pleasure, what that brings to mind. It was pleasure found through the absence of pain. So one would, uh, uh, would seek to avoid pain more than they would to seek pleasure, as we know it, actively. The aim instead was tranquility and peace, escapism of sorts. So in their belief, the gods were actually the perfect example of a hedonist lifestyle because the gods Or above, in a way, not encountering the humans and the strife and the hardship that comes with engaging humanity on earth. And so that was something they looked to as the goal. And lastly, they believe that everything was made of atoms that just went to and fro. And the importance in that is that they don't actually, they're not fearful of death, because it is the absence of pain completely, but also they don't believe in a true, full death as much as a separation of Adam's. Nothing actually decays or dies. And so for them, escaping pain, escaping hurt, escaping inconvenience of life is what is sufficient. And in this setting, it seems some of them, in their arrogance, we see right away say, what does this babbler wish to say? Which gives you the idea that they haven't really heard him say anything. Maybe they know he's speaking. Maybe they're looking at him and they're judging him based off of what he looks like. It seems to be that maybe they think he, Paul is a waste of time. They don't want to lend an ear to him. And yet there's others after that as well that seem to some extent to at least heard Paul speaking that say he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Almost flustered as if like, oh, this is interesting. It's definitely not new, but again, as we'll see later on, they love to hear new beliefs. And so Luke gives us, Luke gives us a quick context to that. What are these foreign divinities they're referring to? And he says gives us this little aside at the end of verse 18 because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. And in the Athenians' arrogance, remember, being in this intellectual hub, gaining knowledge nonstop, being in their arrogance, they also reveal their ignorance. They claim Paul is preaching about divinities, which should strike us quickly. Divinities is plural. We know Paul is not um, preaching anything other than Jesus. So where is this coming from? And it's helpful, in their arrogance, there is this ignorance, there is this assumption of how he is preaching. They actually assume that he is preaching in a sort of polytheistic way, which is just this idea of many gods, which is very common in Athens, as there are idols, statues, things worshipped everywhere. And we see this because also the Greek word for resurrection in this is anastasis, which was commonly known as a woman's name as well. And so in this, we see the ignorance of the Athenians, that they, and they aren't, don't even be, seem to be listening, that they're assuming what Paul's preaching about because that is what they're used to in Athens. And the philosopher's response to what Paul's saying, though, is to take him away. They don't want to engage in conversation, it seems, with him. Instead, they want to take him to the Areopagus. Let's go, let's get, let's get this guy over to the Areopagus. And this begs us to ask, Why? Well, one, it's quite possibly could be more of a forceful taking of Paul. Some scholars understand that when it says they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, that it's more of a forceful, not necessarily asking him to come for lunch or so on. But whether it is forceful or not, where they were taking him is what is important. Remember, Athens was a free city, had its own institutions, own government, and the Areopagus was the highest ruling body of all of those institutions. So forcefully taken or not, there is some tension to be had here. There's a gravity to the situation given where he's going. The Areopagus was a destination for those who wanted to, uh, they were brought to give voice to their claims or beliefs that they had. And then elites of this body would go ahead and agree or disagree if, if, if this belief was admissible for Athens. And if it was, then there would be another thought and belief that would float around Athens along with the many others that were there. But in some that had been in the same role as Paul going to Areopagus, there were some that had also been killed for their beliefs. So there's a heaviness here. This would have been known. Uh, The Jewish historian Josephus spoke highly, more of a notorious way, of the Athenians in regards to this. He says, "...an inexorable penalty on any who uttered a single word about the gods contrary to their laws." So there's also a threat, possibly, to Paul's life here. So why the intense response, then, by the philosophers to bring Paul to the Areopagus? In verse 19 and 20, is helpful to at least put words um, to the Athenians and their interests. And they, it says, and they took him, in verse 19, and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. For you bring strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And let's remember what the philosophers lived by. The temporal or the physical were not compatible. The gods were far away. The temporal or the physical were not compatible with the spiritual. They could not coexist. And the Stoic was sure to live by reason, which would be sufficient for maintaining control, if you remember. And the Epicurean looked to escape pain, escape hurt and inconvenience by one's own effort to receive that peace and pleasure they were looking for. Sufficiency was found within one's own ability to attain that peace, because the gods had nothing to do with them. It, it was, if, if what Paul was preaching was Jesus and the resurrection was true, then If it was Jesus in the resurrection that was true, then the philosophers are hearing him say that the temporal, the physical, and the spiritual are actually indeed compatible. That God is sovereign, and ultimately, he is sufficient for all that we need. This would not sit well, but idols need us to even function as idols. You ever think of that? Idols, to be idols, they need us to function as them in our context. And God doesn't at all. He does not need us to be God. He is completely sufficient within himself. And this would have been crazy offensive to these philosophers, Paul saying that God is sufficient by his spirit through the person and work of his son, Jesus. If the story of Jesus is true, then the idea of the gods being upstairs, out of touch with us, would be destroyed. We aren't unique from the philosophers in this, are we? They verbalize this, and they verbalize how we function, don't they? Somehow, the way we read miracles, we read of miracles, but we don't actually expect them to happen right here, right now, like that. You know, we read them. There might be an explanation for that, or it was that time. And in this, Jesus inevitably reveals our idols. Jesus exposes our hearts that we might turn to God and believe and trust that he is completely sufficient in and for all things, just as what Paul is bringing to these Athenians. And if God is sufficient, then there is no need for functional saviors, but we lack belief and trust in the sufficiency of God. We know he's sufficient, but do we believe it? Do we believe or do we lack to believe that Jesus is who he indeed says he is. And in that, in turn, our heart idolatry is revealed. No surprise that these philosophers didn't believe this. Think of the environment the, the philosophers lived in. Athens is covered in functional saviors all around. They're covering the streets, people worshiping them, bowing down to them. Though interesting enough, handmade things that are supposedly treated as God's temporal, handmade things treated as divine, temporal and spiritual meeting. So there's even contradiction that the Athenians are saturated in in their context. But though also Athens being a free city, complete control and autonomy for themselves to some extent, as long as things stay chill, Rome ruled, but not really in any engaging kind of way. They were off similar to the gods that they believe were off in the distance. They were there, but they didn't intervene. The context they even lived and resided in was the same system of their belief. They loved that. They probably didn't notice it. So, it's, in some respects, it's, it is no surprise that they believe what they indeed believe. It's a good reminder for us as well that rooted systems such as the system they lived within, tend to multiply themselves or perpetuate unless confronted harshly. Rooted systems tend to multiply or perpetuate unless they are confronted harshly, and we see Paul as that harsh confrontation here in Athens. And this is something to speak to our own context as well. The country that we reside and what this country was built on with oppression and how those are systems of oppression that still live to this day. So we must be weary to not go ahead and continue forward in systems that might actually be rooted in something that isn't of God. So what does it look like to be that harsh confrontation then for those systems in our context as well? We hear the story of these philosophers and we detach ourselves so easily that we're so similar. It's a long time ago, their beliefs are contradictory, they're they're old. We've had thousands of years to go ahead and sift through their beliefs, so we probably know better by now. But if we think we've gotten away from philosophy such as Epicureanism, then we're mistaken. It's alive and well. And the general thought of God being away and not close, not engaging, is still common. That God is transcendent, he is not imminent, that he's there in the heavens but not down here on earth. He's out there but he's not really here. Still very common. We would never say that, we would never tell people that is our belief, but our lives at times definitely function in light of that. World-renowned New Testament scholar and theologian N.T. Wright says, In his book, Surprised by Scripture, he says, The whole project we know as modernity with the European and American Enlightenment movements as its flagship was based on Epicureanism. So we are just as much in this as well as the Athenians. And if Jesus then was truly God and rose from the dead, what Paul was presenting, then the Athenians no longer have control over the temporal world. This is the lie which they believed. It's a lie that we believe as well. Jesus threatens that way of thinking, and in so doing, he reveals the idols of our heart. Not having control over the temporal means there's an unsureness of what is sovereign, of what is in control. If we aren't, then what is? It means something else could be in control, which means for the Athenians, that they are indeed weaker, and that we are indeed weaker than we think we are or wish to be. And when we're weak, we no longer are significant. When we're weak, we no longer feel significance. In verse 21, Luke calls this out in the Athenians. Honestly, kind of a great verse. Throws like some real hard shade real quick at the Athenians as it ends. He goes, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. I can just see him saying this with his legs crossed and chin up. Probably wasn't the case, but um, yet this isn't a compliment. He's not complimenting the Athenians here. Luke reveals other functional saviors that, that they have in Athens, new thoughts and new ideas. To consume and to regurgitate meant the ability to keep the idol of significance alive and well. Keep getting new things, keep being able to tell people the new things that we've learned. We can keep feeding this idol in the heart of significance. They wanted to keep that significance in their city, amongst their friends, other intellectual minds. So significance was the idol of their heart. It's the idol of our heart at times left to just yourself, you think and we think we are quite significant, don't we? Left to just ourselves, we think we are pretty significant. And maybe, maybe it's just me. I know that is the case for myself. The Lord, throughout this time in my residency, has been working on my heart little by little, slowly chipping away at me and excavating my heart, showing new things, and revealing sin little by little in my life as he normally does, but in a new way that kind of is summed up almost in what I was able to read and understand in this, in this word. It started with getting overly stressed the first time I preached here, getting overly stressed thinking of how good and effective I'm gonna be, and then overthinking the way that I lead my group, my small group through the week, and doubting their growth because I'm not effective. I'm not being effective, therefore, what, what's gonna happen in this group? And most recently, it took my grandfather to take a turn for the worst in, in the hospital. In that moment, I felt like I had to fix things. My thought was to go to myself that if I could be there, I would be able to solve things. There would be a fix. I had the solution. In these things, my first thought was always, how can I do things better and more effectively? My first thought was to look directly to myself for the help that I needed, for the need, for for sufficiency. It was straight to my own self. I was able to realize then the sin of self-righteousness, but at that point, it's like, okay, self-righteousness, what then? Well, that was where my functional saviors were shown, and my ability, my functional savior was the ability to have control over things, the outcome of things, how things worked out. Functional savior was solutions. It was myself. Is that me? It was myself. My own idol was myself. No thought in my mind was to look to the God of the universe, the all-sufficient One. That came town as a baby for us for help in a time of need or to confide in Him. No, I didn't want to believe that God was sovereign over all things. He's there, but he's not really here. He's transcendent. He's in the heavens, but he's not here in my life imminently. I was being a good Epicurean. This meant I would have to accept the truth that I'm not in control. And that's, it seems easy to say, but it's not easy to actually do, um, which would mean I'd have to confess that, because I'd have to confess that I'm weak. I'm way weaker than I actually see myself, that we would have to confess that we are weak. And not capable of fixing everything the way that I think I can. And if I can't have it all put together and be sufficient on my own, then how do I have any sort of significance? In God's good grace, he has an answer for this, though, church. And it took a minute for myself, but I was reminded of this, and it's unpacked, but he has an answer for this in the idol of significance and other idols, and it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Paul doesn't forget this. It's why he's constantly proclaiming the lordship of Jesus no matter where he goes. Everywhere he goes, that is what he's doing. We read of Paul, and it almost seems like there's boredom because he, we know what he's going to do, but there's something in that. And it remind, Luke reminds us in verse 18, so some of the Epicurean and Stoic the philosophers, they converse with him. Some say, what does this babbler wish to say? And, Others are, it seems to, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. And then Luke helps us because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. The gospel story of Jesus reveals our idols. Not us. We do not reveal our own idols. Jesus does. And it could be significance. It could be comfort. It could be It could be power. By his grace, our Lord does not expose and reveal our idols, though, and then leave. He doesn't, church. He exposed and reveals our idols. He does not leave. He takes them away. But not only that, Jesus takes away that he might restore more abundantly than we could ever fathom. Jesus takes away the idol of significance. And he gives true, real, and lasting significance back to us. He takes away the idol of power and gives true, real, lasting power back to us. And he takes away comfort. And what he does is give true, real, and lasting comfort to us. And all of this is found in the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. How so, you might ask. i am I going to tell you? He gives us significance, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Paul says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might become the righteousness of God. That's crazy and awesome and very significant. He gives us power, 2 Corinthians 12.9. Paul is asking God to take away the thorn in his side and he lets us know the response of God. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I boast in all, all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That's a good word. God tells him his grace, he himself, is sufficient for him. Not new ideas, not new thoughts, not our own control of the situation. And not only that, but the Lord says his power is made perfect in our weakness. Y'all, that means we don't need to shy away from being weak because God's power is made perfect in that. And then Paul just throws it in, just an aside, but it's beautiful at the end there. It's so great. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That's a beautiful thing, church. And lastly, he gives us comfort. There's two points to this. I think are helpful. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 5. Paul, yet again, it says, for I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. There is comfort in this because the life, death, burial, resurrection, and soon-to-be ascension in this text is true, church. We can find comfort in that. It is a true, there is eyewitness, it is a true story. And in John 15, 4, Jesus who says, abide in me, and I in you. Abide in me, and I in you. Church, Jesus gives us an action to do there, but the action is to rest. There is a beauty in that. And so church, getting down to the root, to that heart idolatry, getting down to it is not an easy endeavor. This took actually this sermon for me and some conversations with people in my community to get to my own. So I say that and I mean it is not an easy endeavor. It takes time sometimes. It's exhausting. It takes coming to the Lord over and over again in word and in prayer. It takes our community. It takes true and real confession to then hopefully experience true repentance. Much of the time in our confession to God, or, or do each other, we confess the surface, don't we? We shy away from detail, leave things vague so we can protect our own dignity. A dignity which inevitably lives and dies based off our ability to be sufficient for ourselves. You try to find how to confess just the right way so that we can still have it all together. I did this, but chill, like I'm still good. You know, like don't worry about helping or anything like that. We wanna maintain that we are significant. It's this idea that was presented months ago, and I have to bring it up again because it's just beautiful. Curated imperfection. Church, curated imperfection is quite often our default mode if it isn't silence. It's curated imperfection. But curated imper- imperfection feeds the idols of our heart. And this is the beauty of being in community, because we don't see everything. We don't see everything in ourselves. We need community. God uses those around us to speak truth in love and remind us of Jesus and his resurrection as Paul does here with the Athenians and to grow us in holiness. This means when we confess sin, we confess all of it. We confess the details. We confess those things we told ourselves no one should hear because we're fearful that they'll judge us, that they won't love us. We're fearful that we are the only ones going through this. We confess those things because of Jesus and his resurrection. Jesus reveals the idols of our heart. But church, he doesn't only reveal the idols of our heart. He takes them away. And he gives us himself. Let me pray. Lord, your word is good. It is so good to our soul. We thank you that you are a God who loves and who cares, who convicts, yet comforts, Lord. Lord, continue to work in us to get down to the idols of our heart, to know that it might be a strenuous time to get there. It might be exhausting, Lord but, Lord, you have joy on the other side of that, and that's yourself. Give us conviction to be in our word, in prayer to you, confessing and pleading with you, and in community, Lord. Lord, you are so good. Help us. Thank you for your son's life, death, his burial, resurrection, and ascension. In your name, amen. Isaiah 53, 5 through 7, it reads, But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. And we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That's the Lord we serve. He was crushed, chastised, whipped, and beaten that we might be healed and brought back to communion with the triune God. And we read in Matthew 26, as we're sitting around with each other, broken we look back and remember christ's work on the cross but we also come with an expectant heart knowing that one day christ will return and we will partake in this with him for those of you who are not followers of christ we respectfully ask that you would abstain uh, simply because it would not mean the same um, thing to you but in the same breath there's no better time than the present to turn away from the idols of your heart to turn away from the functional saviors that ask for our every affection and give nothing in return and look to Jesus. So that's you. If you can confess Jesus is Lord and truly believe that God raised him from the dead, then come, join us. For communion, <clears throat> you will come down the center aisle, You grab the elements, grab the bread, dip it in the juice, and then walk uh, to the side aisles to your seat. Lord, we thank you that we can gather together on a Sunday like this and we can celebrate, we can joyfully celebrate baptisms, member affirmations, ultimately you and your work in both of those, Lord. We thank you that we can also look back on what you've done together and that we can look forward with a kingdom mindset that one day you will return. Amen. Come when you're ready.